Well, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in the third grade, and it was early on a Sunday morning, and my dad came, and he awakened me with these words. And to a third grader, these were frightening words. He said, son, today you're going to lead your first song in church. I didn't want to lead my first song in church. I, 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 I had been in church, you know, and, and my dad sang, and for some reason my dad thought this was the morning that I was going to lead a song. And, uh, and so, sure enough, that, that's, that's what happened. And so I got up, and I got the songbook. We had a songbook at home. Uh, we had, back then, Barry, we had the brown books. You remember the brown book. Some of you are old enough to remember the brown book. It was before the red book, and the red book... Scared, I mean, sacred selections. Y'all, some of you remember the red book. But we had the brown book, and I found Abide With Me. And I stood in front of that august crowd of 35 people, and, and I stood on that front row and uh, turned to face the audience. My dad, truth be told, did more of the leading than me, but I led my very first song. You know, some of you right now probably don't even know what songbooks are, do you? I mean, we used to, we, we had these songbooks, and we, those songbooks went through various iterations, the brown book, and then the red book, and then, then there was this blue book, and then now we have this red book in the pew in front of you. And, and back in the day, we were so familiar with those, those songbooks that we knew songs just by number. Can you remember this? We knew songs by number, so I could say... 728B, and people would just instinctively be singing, Our God, He is Alive. But it wasn't just that song. I mean, we had all, I, I don't even know, Barry, I don't even know the numbers now, but, but back in the day, we, we knew those numbers and we could sing those songs. And I got to thinking this week, I wonder, what was the songbook of the first century church? Uh, you know, we think songbooks are kind of a fairly new invention, and really they're, they're not. Because that first century church, as they gathered on the Lord's Day to worship, they had a songbook. And that songbook is what many of you hold in your hands right now. It was the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms were the songs that not only those in the Old Testament period would sing as they came together in the temple, uh, in the synagogues to sing, but not only that, that first century church would use the psalms and they would sing those psalms. And so as I thought today, as we think about worship, as for just a few moments we wrap our minds around this important topic that, that causes a lot of disagreement among Christians and divisions in churches, I thought really there's no better place to turn than that ancient hymn book, the book of Psalms, as we strive to think about what it means to worship and all that's involved in worship. And so I want us to look at Psalm 145. It was read just a few moments ago uh, in our scripture reading, but if you have a Bible uh, in your lap, would you open up to Psalm 145? And you know, the first thing you're going to notice about this psalm is that this psalm is called, the superscript above the verses says, A Psalm of Praise of David. This is David's last psalm that he wrote. It's, at least it's attributed to him. And it's the only psalm in the entire Psalter that's described as a psalm of praise. So this morning as we think about praise, it just seems to me we ought to spend a little time in the only psalm in your Bible 
that's described as a psalm of praise. And right at the very beginning of this psalm, in the first just couple of verses in Psalm 145, David seeks to expand our vocabulary for worship. He uses three different words, three distinct words for worship or, or praise. He, he enriches our language. And so he says in verse 1, it should be on the screen, it says, I will exalt you, my God, my King. Notice how personal it is. Uh, there's a sense in which worship is corporate. I mean, it's something we all do together. And so we all have an opinion about worship. We come together to worship. But there's another sense in which it is personal. It's something we do. David says, I, I exalt you, my God and my King. The word exalt is interesting. It's a word that means we put God at the highest place. We offer him the greatest praise. He doesn't just get a place in our lives. He gets the place, the highest place. We exalt his name. And then in verse 2, David says, Every day I will praise you. Here's another word for worship, praise. Notice, this isn't something we just do on Sunday. It's important that we gather together on Sunday. And I'm glad you're here. And that God calls us together corporately to worship on Sundays. But worship is something that we do every day. Worship is not only different acts that we do together, but also worship is a, is a posture. It's an orientation toward life. And so David says, I will praise you. The word praise means I will thank you. I will acknowledge you every day. And then he says in verse 2, at the latter part, and I will extol your name forever and ever. I will extol, I will glorify, I will, literally, I, the idea is I will celebrate who you are. We're only two verses into this beautiful psalm, Psalm 145, and we learn three different words that describes worship. In worship, we, we give God, we exalt God, we give God the highest place. We thank God and we celebrate who he is, and what he's done. And not only that, but we thank him for all the ways he has blessed our lives. Now, the other thing about this psalm that you'll find interesting, and you notice I call this uh, sermon, Worship, the Alphabet of Praise, because this is one of the few psalms in the Psalter, in the entire collection of psalms, that, that is an acrostic. Now, you don't see this in, in English, but if you had a Hebrew text in front of you, if you could read Hebrew, you would notice that the first word in verse 1 begins with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And the first word in verse 2 begins with a second word in the Hebrew alphabet, Bet, B. And it goes on and on for, all, for 21 verses, for the 21 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It's like God is saying, and David wants us to see that it's all, life is all about praising God from A to Z, from beginning to end. That's what our life is about. It's not just about coming together on Sundays, but every day, every moment should be filled with praise. We exalt God, we thank God, we celebrate God for who he is and what he's done. That's not a bad way, if you think about it, to think about worship. And then from verse 3 on in this beautiful psalm, Psalm 145, it describes this God that we worship. Why do we exalt God? Why do we celebrate God? Why do we thank God? 
Well, you may recall in an earlier sermon on worship near the beginning of the year, I made this statement. I said, how we worship is dependent on who we worship. When we have this big sense of God, this great sense of God, that will impact the posture we take as we come in here on Sunday morning. And so from verses 3 and following, following, we learn all these things about the nature of God that, brothers and sisters, should impact greatly how we worship Him. And so we worship and praise a great and powerful God. We learned that in verse 3 where it says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness, it says, no one can fathom. What is God like? Who is this God? God is great. I like Tim Keller's definition of worship. Keller says this, Worship is seeing what God is, seeing what God is worth, and giving him what he is worth. When you think about that definition, there are two parts to it. First of all, acknowledging or understanding or seeing what God is worth. And then the second grows out from that, then, then giving God what he is worth, expressing God's greatness. And so because we believe God is great, God deserves our time, our attention, our adoration, our heart, our very lives. And when I don't worship well, when I'm inattentive or passive or not really engaged, when I come into an assembly like this and I kind of mentally check out, quite honestly, it's making a statement about how much I really think God is worth. Though we may, ne may never utter these words, it's almost as if we're saying, God, you're not really worth that much to me. But in worship, we express God's greatness. We respond to his glory and his majesty and grandeur. You know, the most common phrase that any preacher who's done this for any length of time at all, or worship leader, Barry, uh, is that from time to time, I, I will hear someone say something like this. They will leave one of our assemblies and they'll say something like, well, I just didn't get anything out of worship today. Now, we need to be very careful when we make that statement because it may reveal a fundamental misunderstanding of worship on our part. Instead of making that statement, perhaps in humility, we should ask a question. Maybe the question we should ask is this. Did God get anything out of my worship today? Soren Kierkegaard is a Danish philosopher and writer, and he once wrote an essay, and he was contrasting these different views people had regarding worship. And Kierkegaard said, many people think of, of the congregation as the audience when we think about worship. You know, you're set up to believe that. Because, you know, you come in here, and, and we have these, these pews, these seats, and we're all looking in the same direction. We're looking in this direction. And so if the congregation is the audience, then the preacher or the worship leaders or anybody who, takes, who stands on this platform is really seen as the performer. And yet from the Bible's point of view, there's only one audience in worship. And the audience is God. And if you really want to use performance language, 
The people in the congregation are the performers. We're singing, we're praying, we're listening intently as the word is is proclaimed. We're giving back to the Lord our offering and praise. You see, the minister and the worship leaders, what we are, we're we're prompters. Those of us who are up here are, are prompting you, prompting every one of us to give glory to God. And so when we leave worship maybe we shouldn't ask how good was that sermon or how inspiring was the singing rather we should ask a more convicting and a deeper question each of us should ask how good was I Lord did I give God the glory to his name Um, each of us plays to an audience of one in worship each of us understand we're not singing to each other oh there's a sense in which is when we get blessed when we sing but friends we're singing to god it's one of the reasons why i I love music that has the personal pronoun i in it or or we in it we, we have entirely too many songs in our book we're singing about god instead of singing to god in worship god is the audience and we're singing to god preaching it affects how I preach. Every week I need to ask myself the question, does what I'm about ready to say, does it bring glory and honor to God? Is it something that God would say, yes? I, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching, really, with this understanding that God is present and God is listening. I'm speaking on behalf of the Lord. Now that's a daunting task when you think about it. To speak on behalf of God. And when we're praying... We're speaking to God. We're coming into the very throne room of God. Whoever stands up here corporately on a Sunday morning and occupies this place and begins to lead us in, in, in prayer, we're speaking to God. You are speaking to God on behalf of the men and women in this room. And so certainly this understanding will impact the quality of what we do. So we need to ask ourselves as we plan worship, Does this music do justice to the greatness of God? Do my words as I plan to preach adequately reflect what God would have me say? When I'm uttering words, am I saying things to God? Am I taking seriously this idea that I'm speaking on behalf of the people to God? And so verse 3 says, Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. And then David says down in verse 5 of this psalm, I will meditate on your wonderful works. Yeah, it's not a bad way to prepare our hearts and minds for worship, is it? Isn't it? It's not a bad way to, to think as, as before we come together to worship, before you come in this room to give God glory, to think and to meditate on all the wonderful works of God. And then verse 6, it says, they tell these works, these mighty acts of God, they tell of your power, of God's great power. Part of the greatness of God is seen in God's power. And so as we read the narrative of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation, we're reminded of the power and the greatness of God. We see the greatness and the power of God in the opening chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the world by the power of His spoken word. 
We see the power of God in the book of Exodus as God is leading the people out of Egyptian bondage through this servant Moses. And God does incredible things. We come to the New Testament. We see the power of God in in Jesus. As Jesus stood in front of a tomb, Lazarus had been dead several days. He's in the tomb. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And if we'd been there that day, we must have thought, what's going to happen? And suddenly Lazarus comes walking out of that tomb. Or how about that moment when Jesus is in the boat? And, and the boat is being tossed about on the water like a paper cup. And Jesus stands and he says to the winds and the waves, Quiet, be still! And the winds and the waves suddenly grow. That cal- Suddenly the, the water grows calm and, and peaceful. And the disciples are afraid in that moment because they understand who's in the boat with them. It wasn't just a great teacher. It wasn't just someone who had the ability to hold a crowd's attention. Oh, no, this was none other than the Son of God. This was God come in the flesh. And so sometimes when we gather here on Sunday mornings, we need to be reminded of the power of God. I need to be reminded of God's power so that I can keep going. He gives me the power to say no to Satan when I feel like giving in. He gives me the power to stick with my Christian convictions even when I work around a lot of people maybe who don't share those same Christian convictions. When we worship, we need to be reminded of God's power and it has impact not only for for this day, but it has impact on on Monday as well. But but there's something else about God we learn. We worship and praise not only a God who is great and powerful, but friends, we worship a God who is good and gracious. Look at verse 7 of Psalm 145, where it says, they celebrate your abundant goodness. And then verse 9 it says, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. You see, what if our powerful God was was not good? That'd be a scary thing, wouldn't it? To serve a powerful and a mighty God, but what if God was not good? And you know, there's some people in the world who believe that. They'll attribute some things to God that I'm not sure they should attribute to God. You know, they'll commit some kind of sin and say, well, God's going to judge me. God's going to get me. You know, or they'll look at some bad thing that's happened in their life and they'll say, well, God did this probably because of some sin way back in the past. And what they're saying, in essence, was God's powerful, but, but God may not be good. And yet, if you read through the Scripture, you'll see a God who is mighty and a God who is powerful but we'll also see a God who's incredibly good. How do we see God's goodness? We see it in his compassion and grace toward us. Notice how God is is described in verse 8. This is a phrase that's used all through your Bible. It says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. Notice it, it doesn't say God never gets angry. God gets angry. He does. But he's slow to anger, and he is rich in love that's the god we worship god's goodness is seen in god's compassion and god's grace and friends when we understand that's the kind of god we serve it takes our worship to a whole new level we come into this space and we acknowledge that god is great and god is powerful but we also come into this space and we acknowledge that god is good 
God is gracious. And so let's personalize it just a little bit. You see, in spite of all the wrong that I've done, and I'm a human being like, like all of you are, and, and one of the common features of every one of us in this room is that we've all fallen short of God's glory. In spite of all that I have done wrong, like the prodigal son who's welcomed home after his rebellion, God always welcomes us home. God's grace, friends, it's what makes Christianity unique among the world's religions. The other world religions have some creation story. The other world religions have some, some concept of maybe incarnation. But Christianity stands unique in the sense it's not about our works. It's not about climbing the ladder up to God. It's not about being good enough. Christianity is different in that God came to meet us. And God took our place in Jesus on the cross. And God is good enough. Common sense tells us that, that we can't meet the standards of God's holiness. Grace tells us that everything is all right in spite of so much being, put that on the screen, guys, so much being so wrong. God is patient. He doesn't punish us as we deserve. Oh, no. Now, if I were to ask you to come up with a list of all the things that God wants from us, I mean, we could come up with a pretty expansive list. We'd say, well, he, he wants our obedience, and he wants our purity, and he wants us to acknowledge him in worship, and he wants to give us to give financially, uh, and, and he wants us to tell others about Jesus, and on and on we could go. I'd come up with quite a list, but the most important things, the most important thing is not on that list that I just mentioned. In the New Testament, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says it's this, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ultimately, what does God want? We're his children. God wants what you want from your kids. You want your kids to love you. And see, just as God loves us, God embraces us. That's what he wants in response from us. And worship is that moment when every week we get to come into this room and declare that God is worthy. We get to come into this space and, and say to God and show to God how much we love Him. You see, when we gather in this place, I'm convinced that some of you really struggle. Some of you really struggle with this idea that, that God loves you. Maybe it might even be more general than that or, or, or maybe more specific. You struggle with this idea that you could be loved at all. You think, I've done so much. and Well, if you only knew the kind of life I lived, if you only knew what I did last week or last month, if you only knew how bad I blew it, you probably wouldn't love me, and boy, God, certainly, he, he wouldn't love me. And so we come into this space, and one of the things we need to be reminded of on a week, weekly basis is how deeply God loves you. And how deeply God loves me. And friends, when that sinks deeply into our hearts, it's transformative. We're able to love others as we should. And you know what it does for me too? It helps me, it helps me to become the kind of man that I know God is calling me to be. We, we praise and worship a good and gracious God. But we do one more thing. We praise and worship a God 
who is engaged and near. Now, there's so much that could be said, more could be said about Psalm 145, but, but look at verse 18 where it says, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. And he goes on to say that He hears us as we cry, He saves us, He watches over us. All of those are wonderful promises of God. This describes a God who is engaged, a God who is near. This God is not indifferent. This God is not far away. Oh no, He is, he is near. And yet there are times, I've got to just be honest with you, you, you probably are like this too, uh, too. There are moments when I come into this place, and I've got a lot on my mind, there are times when I gather here to worship with you all, instead of having my mind on God and His grandeur and glory, sometimes my mind is in so many smaller things times I fear I'm like Jacob in Genesis chapter 28 Jacob was on his way to Bethel you may remember this or he was actually on his way to Haran he was at Bethel and he he has this he, he he falls asleep at night and he has this incredible dream and in this dream he sees a picture of God and what he sees is this this ladder and God is at the very top of the ladder, and there's angels ascending and descending. It's one of those moments, one of those dreams where, where Jacob senses that, that God is, is present, that God is coming down that stairway, that God's, God's uh, messengers are anyway. And he's encouraged by this dream. He's blessed by this dream. God says to, to Jacob, all people on the earth are going to be blessed by you and your offspring. And God says, I'm going to watch over you, and I'm going to bring you to this land I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. And then Jacob wakes up, and he makes this statement in verse 16 of Genesis 28. He says, surely the Lord was in this place, and I was not aware of it. I've got to confess to you so many times, I gather in this place, and we're singing songs to God. I love you, Lord. And I've sung the song so much, I can almost sing it just from memory and wrote. My mind's a, a thousand different places. Or maybe we gather around the Lord's table, and I'm thinking about everything but the one thing that says God loved me enough to come and die for me so that I can be in heaven with Him as I take bread and wine. There are times when my mind is a thousand miles away. God is in this place. And I was not aware of it. And then Jacob says, how awesome is this place? And that is true. How awesome is this place when we gather on this day and we're reminded that God is present times when I need to be reminded that God is near. Oh, certainly. God, God is near always. I mean, He dwells me by His Spirit. When I confess my faith in Him and are baptized in Jesus' name, His Holy Spirit comes to live inside me. I realize that. So Monday morning He is with me, and Monday night He is there, and Wednesday afternoon He is there. But, but I, I believe something special happens when God's people gather together on the Lord's Day. And when God's people come with a sense of anticipation and expectation, there are those moments when we experience the manifest presence of God. I'll never forget one time having this experience. I was at a particular college, and our, our college has this, um, 
this big musical extravaganza on a Friday and Saturday. I think maybe now they might have three big shows, Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday. And all, all these college kids come together, and there's so much energy and focus. And I, I remember, you know, uh, attending this event on a Saturday evening, and the energy, and I mean, these kids were pouring out everything at this event. And there's kind of an award ceremony. And I remember thinking the energy and the excitement of, of that. The next day was Sunday. I showed up at church. I'm sitting out in that assembly. I'm seeing the same kids. Only I'm seeing passivity. I'm seeing heads down. I'm seeing boredom. And I thought, how, how can we be so energetic and excited and, and, and you know, um, engaged on Saturday night with something that frankly does not matter? And on Sunday, we gather in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. And it seemed like our hearts were checked out. Surely God was in this place and I was not aware of it. Who we worship makes all the difference in how we worship. You see, what real worship does, it does battle with the false narratives that each of us deal with all the time about God. When we worship, we're reminded that God is great and God is powerful. When we worship, we understand that God is good and God is gracious. When we worship, we realize that God is near and that God is engaged in our lives. And those understandings of God, I think, make all the difference in the world with regard to how we praise and how we worship Him. And so David, at the very end of this psalm, he makes this statement. He says, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. David said, my heart is filled with praise. David wasn't a perfect man. Oh, he struggled with a lot of things. He blew it in a lot of ways. But David had a heart for worship. I think because he understood who God was. He understood something about the grandeur and the glory of God. And when you do, your heart will overflow in praise. Today, if you have a need we can help you with, um, we all have some elders and their wives in the very back. They would love to talk with you. Or if you would like to, um, this morning, you have a need I can help you with, I'll be down front. If you would like to confess Christ and be baptized today, or if you have some other need we can help you with, come as we stand and as we sing.